All right, I have some good news. I also have some bad news. The good news is we're all stuck with each other. It's also the bad news. We're all stuck with each other, sorry. Um, now, overall, that, that's good news, but there, there's a tension in, in our relationships. Uh, sometimes there's people around us who can just fill us up. The more we hang out with them, we just feel filled up. And there's other people that we hang out with, and they just drain us down. Um, there, sometimes people can't get enough of being around us. They just love it. And there's other times where people just can't stand to be around us. And if you're sitting there this morning and you're going, I don't know what you're talking about, Tom. People love to be around me at all times. <laughs> you're the worst. You're the worst, really. That's, that's the case. Because, uh, you know, we, we, sometimes it's easy to look at the people around us and spot all their flaws and problems and how annoying they can be and fail to realize how annoying we can be. It, it was several years back that my family and I, we loaded up into the man van. We were driving to Home Depot. Uh, the, the one there on US 19 and Curlew, and we're, we're, uh, we're heading south on McMullen Booth. I got to get into the right lane. I'm in the middle lane there. I'm driving on McMullen Booth, and, and I see a spot in the right lane where I can kind of merge into, so I put my blinker on, and I start edging my way over into the right lane. I can see in my rearview mirror the guy in the right lane behind me speeds up. Yeah, you've been there, right? Yeah. Pushes me out, and I have to swerve back into, into the middle lane. And I just yell out, what a jerk! And, and my kids are looking at me like, what's going on, Dad? And so I do the Christian thing. I put my feet on the gas, and, and I speed. <laughs> I, I speed on down further past that guy, and, and I see another spot there in the right lane. And so sure enough, I quickly put on my blinker. I start to make my way into the right lane. Now, this time, completely different person in the right lane behind me starts to speed up to push me out. I'm not having it this time. I force my way in, and then the guy behind me lays on his horn, and I'm like, what a jerk, what's wrong with that guy? And that's about the time where I realized, I spotted the flags on the cars in the right lane, and I saw the the hearse that was leading the whole funeral procession that didn't happen to you ever, no, no, no. Sometimes it's easy to look at the people around you and think they're all jerks and fail to realize that you're the biggest jerk of all. (laughs) We're not perfect. We're people. And and it's because of our imperfections that it puts strain and tension on our relationships. The reality is we're stuck with one another. We need one another. In fact, if we want to win the day, then we have to realize a, a very basic truth, and that is winners, winners work as a team. What's going to work? Teamwork. So if you have toddlers, you get that joke. But, um, but yeah, it, it's teamwork that works. The problem is there's multiple problems that push us away from teamwork, that, that, yes, we kind of know we'll probably win if we work as a team, but there's other things in our life, other drives we have that, that work against this whole idea. One is simply this. One problem is we chase after autonomy. We chase after autonomy. Now, autonomy is that whole idea that we don't need anybody. We can be fully independent of people. Uh, we, we can kind of earn our way there. We can be our own person, be our own boss, that we can have unlimited freedom. 
And a lot of times it's things in our past that kind of push us even further in this pursuit. Uh, Maybe you've lost a job and somebody fired you and you don't want anybody to have that much control over your future again. And so you chase after being your own boss or autonomy. Or maybe you grew up poor and and you felt that that the amount of money you had limited the amount of freedom you had. And and so you don't want to ever be poor again. And so you chase after money that might equal freedom. In fact, we'll even define success as autonomy. The idea that I can't wait to arrive at this point where I can do whatever I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. And, and, and we'll, we'll go after this idea. And I'm not saying that autonomy is bad. What I am saying is it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as it. We never become fully independent of each other. I mean, you might rise in the ranks as CEO in your organization, but you're still accountable to at least a board of directors. You might decide to quit your job to start your own business, be your own boss, but you have all these customers you're now accountable to. I was talking to a guy recently who quit his job to start his own business, and he said, I traded out one crappy boss for about 100 He said, my my customers, they always got issues. They always got complaints. And I got to keep them happy if I want to have a business. That's true. Autonomy is really a myth. It's a lie. And yet, we still chase after it. Like we're going on a Sasquatch safari. I mean, we're, we're, sign me up. We're like, let's go for this. Why? Why do we chase after something that's not even available to us? Well, one reason is simply this. Autonomy is addictive. It's intoxicating something about it. It's, it's really kind of this appetite we have within ourselves. And the thing about appetites, the more you feed them, it's not like they go away and they're satisfied. No, the more you feed an appetite, the more it grows. So if we get a little money, we want more money. If we ex- get a little bit of power, we want more power. If we experience a little bit of freedom, we want more freedom. And we'll chase after this. It, it gets intoxicating. And what makes it worse is it also intoxicates the people around us. There's other people who will look at our lives and think we have certain types of freedoms, and they will envy us. And we like that envy. We like them to think that, and it just makes us want to chase after it all the more. We want to have the most autonomy, more than them. And it just feeds like a monster. The problem, though, with the chase after autonomy is autonomy, there's, it costs. There's a high cost to autonomy. And the reason autonomy ends up costing us is because intoxicated people have yet to be known to make great decisions. At the end of the day, when we get intoxicated with this pursuit, we don't make great decisions. Now, you, it ha- there's an individual cost. You've seen it. You've seen it on the news over and over. You see the guy who he's, he's chasing after the power, and he gets it. He's chasing after the fame. He gets it. He, he's chasing after the money, and he just keeps going for more and more and more. And we're like, we want to be that guy. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. And even he starts to think that. He thinks he's above the rule, rules, and so he breaks the rule. And next thing we see is he's arrested for breaking that rule. And he goes into prison. And he goes from chasing after unlimited freedom to losing all of his freedom. Because that's where the pursuit takes us. There's also relational costs. We start to give up our close relationships when we chase after autonomy. We start to look at everybody as a potential client or a potential customer. We start to look at people of how can they help me get to where I want to be. And then we grow suspicious of them. Then we assume, well, if they want to be close to me, it must be because they want something from me. 
and we give up close relationships for careful ones. And we'll, uh, we'll look out for number one. But at the end of the day, that's all we're stuck with. And as Griffin kind of shared with us last week in his message that, you know, we don't go to funerals and celebrate how much an individual stored up for themselves. No, we celebrate the relationships they had and what they gave away. And so there's this relational cost if we chase after autonomy. There's also a spiritual cost if we chase after autonomy and continue to do so. We start to think we are smarter than God. Now, we don't come out and say it that way. It, it, it shows up in, in other aspects in our relationship with God. It shows up may, maybe like in our Bible reading. In fact, if we're chasing after autonomy, eventually we don't want to read our Bibles. We don't want to read the Scripture. One reason we don't want to read it is, is because we don't want to read something that might uh, conflict or convict us, right? It, it does, we don't want to read something that may, you know, shake up our very pursuit that we're going for. Or sometimes we think we're so smart, you know, that that we think we don't need to read it because we figure we're smart enough to intrinsically figure out what it has to say anyway. I don't need to read it. I can just kind of follow my gut. I, I can just kind of follow my own moral compass, and I'm sure it'll line up with what, with what the Bible was going to tell me anyway. I don't need to spend any time in those scriptures. I can figure out the right thing to do for my situation. The irony is that the scriptures within the Bible tell you, no, you can't. They, they tell you, no, you're not going to be able to figure out what's right or wrong, apart from the wisdom of God. You're not going to be able to have that much understanding. That's why God wrote it down for you. In fact, it says this in Romans chapter 3. There's no one who's righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. In fact, Romans 8 will continue to tell us that if we head down this path, it will lead to our demise, eventually our death, and a meaningless death, at that. So if the pursuit of autonomy is not a worthy chase and pursuit, what is? Well, the scriptures give us some advice in this area. And so my challenge this morning, instead of chasing after autonomy, how about this pursuit? To pursue real relation over intoxication. To give up the intoxication of autonomy and to chase real relationship. Now, I believe there are some innate desires that have been placed within us since the time we were created. One of those is this, and I think we should feed these desires, by the way. And one is we need to feed the desire for a relationship with God. Let me put it this way. Nobody stands at the edge of the Grand Canyon and marvels at their own master's degree. You know? (laughs) Obviously, I'm smart. No, we, we marvel at the Grand Canyon. It's immensity. And the immensity of him who must have created it. That there's something in us that draws us to mountain ranges, that draws us to the ocean, that draws us where we get this perspective of actually how small we are. It's almost like this wonderful fear we kind of look for to realize how big he must be. There's something wonderful about that. Because we were created to behold God. So then we could be held by that same God. We are created for a connection with this great God. There's another innate desire that's placed within us, and that's the need to feed the desire for a relationship with God's people. This is something that was created deep within us. In fact, it shows up in the, in the very beginning of the Bible. Do you realize that there was a problem in the Bible before sin arrived? If you read Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and earth. He creates the, the oceans, and he goes, that's good. 
He creates the land. He goes, that is good. He, he creates the, the birds and the fish. That is good. He creates the, the animals and the plants. He goes, that is good. But when we arrive at Genesis chapter 2, for the first time, God says something is not good. He says in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Why? Well, if you look back at the previous verses, you see God wants to create us in his image. In fact, that's what it says. says, God has a conversation with himself and says, let us create mankind in our image. God chooses the plural form of his name to let us know that even he's got community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're designed in his image to also need community. We were created for community in the image of God. We were created to crave community. And so... God's answer to the loneliness problem is actually a person. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I really don't like that word helper. It's, it's actually um, a word, we, we've taken a Hebrew text and we've translated it into the English. And I don't think helper quite does it justice. Because sometimes we'll look at that word and we'll go, well, that's a subservient type person or a lesser being. But that's not what the term actually means in the Hebrew. If you were to look it up in the Hebrew, God takes this very same term to describe himself later on in the Psalms. It's a term that means somebody who is strong where the other person is weak. God says, let me create, let me solve this problem by creating somebody who will be strong in woman where the man is weak. And man will be strong where she is weak. You see, God's answer to the problem is a person. Somebody who will compliment us. Somebody, somebody who will help us and compensate for where we are weak. Now, if you work in any organization, it, it, what tends to happen is we'll take these tests that identify our strengths and our weaknesses, and then the organization will spend all this money, time, and resources trying to help you work on your weakness. And we'll spend all this time, money, and resources to get your weakness, and at best, it gets to about mediocre. And even then, we're not happy. Why? Because it's our weakness. We don't like our weakness. But that's not God's solution to your weakness problem. God's solution to the weakness problem is a person. He says, it's not you to be alone, it's you need community. And let me go ahead and solve your problem by bringing in somebody who is strong where you are weak. And if you want to know what kind of people to bring around you who are strong where you are weak, then you've got to be honest about your weaknesses. There's a study that came out in 2010. It was done out of Cornell University. It actually was a five-year study where they followed around 72 business executives who worked in, in organizations that ranged anywhere from $50 million to $5 billion in revenue. And for five years, they followed around these exec- executives, and, and they looked for common traits or common decisions or common things that predictors is what they called them, predictors of success. In other words, if you're a leader and you have this, then, then you have a great chance of turning out to be a successful leader, a successful business executive. And they found one common trait rather quickly that rose to the top. The number one predictor of success out of this study was simply this, self-awareness. That the executives who were self-aware, the ones who were honest about their strengths, but also honest about their weaknesses, were higher performers. In fact, they, they discovered that the executives who were arrogant, the executives who were kind of closed-minded, didn't want to have the talk, um, they actually were lower on the performance rankings. Uh, Somebody associated with the study said this. He said, our findings directly challenge the conventional view that drive for results at all costs is the right approach. In fact, it's the the executives most likely to deliver a good bottom line. Uh, They are actually self-aware leaders who are especially good at working with individuals 
and working in teams. Winners work as a team. They give, out, they give up the pursuit of autonomy and instead pursue real relation over the intoxication that autonomy brings. But there's another problem that, that shows up, especially when it comes to working in teams, and, and that's simply this. We see teamwork as work. And the reason we see it as work is because it is work. I remember when I first signed up to kind of go into vocational ministry, full-time ministry, that's going to be my job. And I remember in my head, it went something like this. It's me and Jesus versus the world. The world doesn't have a chance. We got this. And I was ready for the junk that was in the world. What I was not ready for is all the junk that exists in the church. Threw me for a loop. And I was kind of having one of those self-loathing pity party prayer times at night one night. And I was going, God... Where did you warn me about all the junk that exists in the church? And I kind of had that spiritual slap across the face where I felt God said, I don't know, how about like half the New Testament? I mean, how, how about all those letters I had John write and Peter write? All those letters Paul wrote, and he wrote them to church people. He wrote them to godly people who sometimes behave ungodly with instruction of, instructions of then how to handle it in a godly manner. How about all that time I spent giving you great instruction? Because we're not perfect, we're people. And um, we're going to annoy one another. It's just going to happen. In fact, I like what, I like what Paul says here in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, it starts with, if it is possible. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, You know, there's obviously the the rare occasions, and they are rare, where it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to be able to achieve peace. And that's all right, but they're rare. But then he goes, but as far as it depends on you. In other words, doesn't really matter... What the other person says, does, thinks, or how they behave. The focus is on what we do, what we say, how we behave. What are we going to bring to the table in order to have peace with everyone? Which kind of implies that that's going to be work. That peace is not something easy. We are going to annoy one another. And statistically, we will avoid annoyances at all costs. Statistically... We like to hang out with people who are like us, right? In the workplace, statistically, you will hang out with a coworker who likes the same jokes you do, has the same interests as you do, uh, has the same perspectives and personality as you. In fact, you'll do that not just in the workplace. You'll do that among your siblings. You'll do that among your neighbors. You'll do that your best friend, your best guy friend, your best girlfriend. They'll be similar to you. In fact, there's only one human relationship where statistically we end up with our opposites, the mate relationship, Marriage. It's the only one where statistically we end up with, with a person who's different than us. It's the only one where opposites tend to attract. I think that's why a lot of times you have the dating websites and they'll focus on what do you have in common and, and uh, you know, what, what are your similarities. And those don't tend to end up in marriage when, it's, when those, that's the basis of their algorithm. Because that's not what attracts us. The opposites attract. Now, we don't see that when we're in love. We, we, we make up excuses for it. We go, he just has interesting perspectives, and she's quirky. I mean, we, we don't, we dismiss it. 
and when the fog of love begins to dissipate, we'll start to think, I can't believe she would say something like that. Did, Did you see what he did? And what makes it worse, what makes it worse is we will go to our best friend who's like us, and you're like, my wife said this the other day, can you believe what she said? And he'll be like, she sounds crazy, because she's like me, he doesn't understand. And ladies, you'll go to, to your best friend, and you say, he did this the other day, do you understand? Like, like, he sounds like he's got issues. You know, they will, it doesn't help, because they're like us. And we're talking about a different person. And that's why it's so important in the marriage to work it out together. And, and it's work, it's meaningful work. That's why in church service, we'll have the time where we'll be like, who's been married for 25 years? Who's been married for 50 years? And when they stand up, we clap. Because <laughs> that was work. There's no way it wasn't work. But it was meaningful work. Do you know that the, the, the average, the, the team in your organization, the average team in any organization functions at 57% of their actual capacity? Whatever team you're a part of at work, on average, they function at 57% of their actual capacity. Google did not like those stats. And so a couple years, Google decided to, to do their own study and figure out what made their top-performing teams top-performing. And they found two commonalities among their top-performing teams. One was they were very diverse. It was a team that was made up of extreme diversity when it came to perspectives and likes and dislikes and, and uh, personalities and attitudes and so forth. The second commonality they found out was that these teams had worked very hard so that everybody had a pathway to contribute to the team, and those contributions were all considered valuable. But they worked very hard to get there. Very diverse. Everybody can contribute, and they feel valued. But it was work. And winners work as a team because teamwork works. Now, we'll avoid work. We will. We'll, we'll, we'll avoid things. We'll, we'll go for the allure of isolation sometimes. We're like, I would love my job if it didn't have to do with people. You know, if it was just me, I could do it. I'd be great. The world would be perfect. And we, and we have this allure for isolation. Uh, and, and we'll say things, well, you know, it gets lonely at the top. But it doesn't have to be. If we're willing to work for it, we can, we can begin to create and intentionally go after the community we were created for. And, and so there's, there's a better... There's a better uh, solution than looking at teamwork as work, and that is simply this. To pursue collaboration. Pursue collaboration over isolation. It's a way better pursuit. Um, some of you may know, uh, this weekend I was able to release my first solo book, and it was a, a reminder that there's no such thing as a solo book. <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a long list of acknowledgments on the, on the next page. It's a reminder that there's no dream we chase after, no pursuit we go after, that if we're going to arrive there and it's going to go well, that it doesn't take other people who are willing to come alongside you, cheer you on, help you out, help you get there. And the bonus is we get to celebrate with those people. It's a bigger win when we win together than when we win apart. It's a reminder of something that I heard Pastor Stephen Furtick once say, and that is life is about the moments after the moments. In other words, life is, is about what you do, and who you celebrate with after you get the achievement. No point in achieving anything if you have nobody to celebrate with afterwards. Life's about the moments after the moments. And so collaboration is the bigger win, 
but collaboration is going to be a little work, and it's going to require a couple of things. One thing that collaboration is going to require is unity. Unity. Paul writes in his letter to church people, in Romans chapter 12, he says, For just as each of us has, has one body, actually, let me put it up here, that'd be nicer. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are a diverse people, and it's our diversity that requires a strong unity. And as a church, we're made up of different people. Now, I see, I think we try and do this a lot at church, and that is we almost look for ways to disunify. Like, we look for ways to break fellowship, and we'll do things like, you know, what's your belief on dot, 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 fill in the blank. And then if your answer doesn't line up with my answer, I go, well, I guess we can't break bread together. I guess we need to split up and to do this, and and, uh, and we'll, we'll label things. Sometimes we'll, we'll label them fundamentals or essentials or whatever we want to call them. But, but what Paul's saying is true unity is spiritually based. And it's spiritually based at one source. And that is Christ. In other words, if we can agree on Jesus, then the rest becomes fun discussion, usually among saved people. That Jesus is the strong core of our unity. It's his body. And rather than trying to break it up, we can focus on Jesus and focus on the unity that brings us into the common purpose. The, uh, there's another thing that collaboration is going to require, and that's unique abilities. Unique abilities. Paul continues in chapter 12 where he says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. And if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. It's going to, uh, collaboration is going to require our uniqueness. Look, I don't, uh, I don't sneeze with my hands. I don't cough with my toes. Every body part of mine has specific functions. And if you were to take that body part away, my body wouldn't fully function. Everybody has different gifts, and the scripture lets us know that they are God-given gifts. They're different gifts to different people. And it's fun to get to know those gifts. It's fun. It's, it, I like the spiritual gifts test. I think that's great if you ever do one of those and try and identify those gifts. But it's even more important than identifying the, those gifts to just make sure you're using those gifts for God's work. Because God is always trying to take our natural and our supernatural gifts and use them for the work of Jesus and his purpose. I, I think something that sometimes happens in church, sometimes we claim gifts that are not our gifts. They're gifts we wish we had. We, we like other people who have those gifts, and so we want those gifts as well, and we'll, we'll begin uh, to claim them, but we're a little bit delusional on what our gifting actually is. And, and this isn't just a church problem. This shows up in the rest of the world. Um, I'll prove it. If you just watch the first couple episodes of American Idol, you, you can see. You, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? They, they, go, they, they go into the auditions, and those mean people put them through so that we can see how ungifted they are, right? And we watch them. They, they're just sure they have the gift of singing. And they go on national television. And we all know they do not have the gift of singing. 
And we sit there and we go, who didn't love them enough to tell them that they, you know, singing, you should work on your engineering degree. This is really not for you, you know. You should, you should go after another pursuit. This is really not your gifting. And instead they go and they make fools of themselves. The same thing happens in church. And it happens when you have church people who go to church, but they don't belong to a church. Because when you belong to a church, your gifts are then affirmed. We'll have people come up to us and go, I know I am called to teach. I am called to preach. And we'll go, that's great. Who called you? Who, who called you up and said, man, we'd love for you to come teach. We'd love to, to hear you preach. Obviously, you have those gifts. Who affirmed your gifts? Because when you belong to a church, your gifts become affirmed and you can take them to the next level. For me, it was a youth pastor who was willing to sit down with me in high school. They go, Tom, you've got leadership abilities, but you're leading your life in a completely wrong direction. He said, what if you would let God lead your life and then learn from his leadership? And I'd like you to lead this group among your peers. Somebody who is willing to speak into my life and affirm a gift they saw. Who's affirming your gifts? And whose gifts are you affirming? Collaboration. Collaboration will require all sorts of gifts. It's also going to require humility. Adrian read this verse before. It's a great verse. It shows up in Romans chapter 14. It says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. In other words, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about all of us together. And the nice thing about collaboration is it kind of pushes out pride when we do it. It pushes out, you know, seeking that individual glory because we're in this together. It's Christ's church. It's the body of Jesus. And it's not just a body. It's a growing body. It's a growing body. There's room for more. And I know sometimes that can be scary. I know sometimes we can go, I, I don't want my church to grow. I, I don't want, I don't want it, I, I like it how it is. I don't want my church to get bigger. I, I'm afraid I might get lost somewhere in that process. And there's always that reminder to you, to me, that it's not my church. It's Jesus' church, and he wants to grow his church. And it's going to take people who are willing to humbly get on board and do whatever it takes so the body can function how it was designed to function. When we signed up to be on Jesus' team, we died to ourselves so we could become part of something bigger than ourselves. And the thing about collaboration is a constant reminder of that. It breeds humility. And we're able to win the day because winners work as a team. My oldest son, Parker, he's in middle school right now. Just went on the middle school Believe trip. Had a great, great time, blast, great trip. Um, but I, I remember back when he was first going to kindergarten. Those first two weeks of kindergarten were rough. The year before that, my wife and I decided to kind of take him out of preschool uh, towards the beginning of the year and just for different reasons. And, and as a result, then going to kindergarten later, it, it was a really tough transition for us. 
And uh, I remember we were a couple days into the first week uh, of going to school, and I drove Parker in the car line, and there's the principal kind of waiting for him because she knows, you know, he, he might not go willingly into school. And so she opens the door, helps him out, and, and I can see as I'm driving away, there's the principal. She's holding Parker's hand, and he's laying on the ground playing dead, ho- <laughs> hoping that it means he doesn't have to go to school. And I had a choice right then and there. And so I drove a little further. I pulled into the school parking lot. I went into the office, and then I went and sat in the principal's office. I had the words of my mom ringing in my ear. It's going to take a team to raise your child. And it took him a little while. They got parked at class. He did fine. But, but as the principal came into her office, she saw me, and she, she looked visibly scared. And, and I just told her right away, I said, I, I just want you to know We know we have a strong-willed child. We're strong-willed parents, but we really need some help. In those next few moments, the the principal and I, we we worked out a plan to help Parker transition into kindergarten, and we got the teachers on board, and and I'll say now, Parker's turned out to be a pretty awesome kid. But it's taken a team to get there. It's taken a team of great principals, great teachers, great pediatricians. It's taken a team of great children's ministry leaders and now great middle school ministry leaders. It's taken a team of great neighbors, of grandparents, of his mother. It's taken a team to get there. And I know the temptation. I know the temptation, the the allure of isolation, the chase for autonomy. I know that when things aren't going how we'd like them to go, there's this temptation to start passing blame around, to go, well, it's probably because so-and-so's not doing their job. It's probably because they don't care enough about my kid. It's probably they don't care about me and they don't see me. We start passing the blame around because that's the temptation. The temptation is to break up the team rather than build it. And if we're going to win the day, then it's going to require a team. So my challenge for you, so you can win the day, is to give up the pursuit of breaking up anything and begin building up each day the team. The bad news and the good news is you're stuck with us. And we're okay with that. And for some of you, you've never signed up for the team, and today's your day first person you want on the team is Jesus. And today is your day to sign up and show up. And I'm going to close this out in prayer. If you've never made that decision before, I'm going to pray. And at the end of that prayer, our prayer partners will be forward here. And while everybody's going that way, it's time for you to come this way. And I know that can be scary. I know sometimes we we don't want to sign up for the team because we, we go, well, I'm bringing all this baggage with me. You, you don't know what I got. You don't know the temptations I deal with. You don't even know what I did last night. You, you, you don't know the, the, the hurts I got, the, the, the things I'm struggling with. I don't want to bring this baggage onto the rest of the team. But here's the beauty of joining Jesus' team. He deals with it right here and there and lets you focus on being on the team. And so I can tell you, it doesn't matter what you got to bring forward today. Our prayer partners aren't going to flinch. They've been praying for you before you even knew it. They're just ready to share it with you and to embrace you, to be together. And it's time you realized the truth. And that is you're stuck with us. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for, for those of us who signed up for the team long ago 
that you would remind us as we go throughout this week. That's not about breaking up the team. It's about building it up. You would give us the courage to ask for help when we need help. You would give us the courage to show up when we need to show up and to be your body where we need to be your body because ultimately it's your body and we want it to do what you want it to do. That we would give up our pursuits and revel in your pursuits, God. And Lord, I pray for anybody in the room who hasn't signed up to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, to to say it's it's time to stop leading my own life and let Jesus lead this life and put a team around me. I pray that you give them the courage to come forward. It doesn't matter how big the burdens they bring. You said you'll carry them for us. And so we bank on that promise this morning. Lord, we want to win the day, and we want to win together. Thank you for giving us a way to do it through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless.